Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 91, The New Favourites. So last time we managed to skate right over Bannockburn without having to go through the pain of actually describing how the Scots gave us a drubbing. As English do have some experience of getting drubbed, which I never enjoy, however unbalanced and unobjective that is of me. I'm not looking forward to Joan of Arc, I have to say, but I've got a while to adjust to the forthcoming pain. Anyway, as we said last week, defeat in Scotland put poor old Edward right on the back foot again. So, at the Parliament of 1316, Thomas of Lancaster and the Ordainers were able to impose wholesale changes in his royal officials. This was without doubt Thomas's big moment. He was now officially in the driving seat, with a perfect opportunity to whip the horses into a lather and send the English wagons skipping along down the road of reform. If only Thomas had been the man for the job. But as it happens, Edward's reputation as an administrative idler and incompetent is really not much worse than Lancaster's. It is always worth noting that we should never think of the barons and magnates as a homogenous block. They are an irritable, backbiting lot, always on each other's cases. Just by way of a for instance, in 1316, Hugh Dispenser attacked another lord, a chap called John de Roos, in Lincoln Cathedral, right in front of the king and the assembled worthies. Now, if he did that at work these days, just imagine the tribunals and re-education he'd have to go through. 
and Lancaster himself in particular had a habit of flexing his muscles and resolving disputes by the threat of force. For example, Lancaster and Pembroke were at each other's throats over a land dispute in Northamptonshire. It almost came to open warfare between their retainers until, at the York Parliament in 1314, Lancaster forced Pembroke to give up his claims. Lancaster's only true ally and friend, the Earl of Warwick, died in 1315, and Lancaster's bullying ways meant he was never able to create a genuinely united group behind him. And when push eventually came to shove, it would all become too obvious exactly what the other magnates really thought of him. All of that was in the future, but even in 1315, you'd have to be something of a muppet not to realise that Edward and Lancaster, together in government, was never going to be easy. Edward would always hate Lancaster for what he did to his friend. Nonetheless, he was for the moment forced to grit his teeth and try to work with him. Lancaster, meanwhile, sat in the north like a big, threatening toad, while Edward tried to make sure he wasn't going to provoke him. There are a series of letters in 1316 which show Edward rather anxiously asking for his agreement to various activities and carrying out the Lancaster wishes. All of this made for a most uneasy political situation while the two men danced around each other. At the January Parliament of 1316, for example, Edward breezed in and told everyone he wanted business conducted speedily, possibly so he could get back to bed with Isabella. But Lancaster wasn't there. He knew he had Edward on the end of a leash and really didn't care who knew it. He finally deigned to tip up in February and business could at last begin. The main business at this Parliament was that Edward had been forced to accept the realities of his situation and so Lancaster was asked to become the head of the King's Council. Lancaster thought deeply and hard and, a bit unsurprisingly, agreed. He agreed, he said, because the king had convinced him that he'd reform his ways and household and reign by the rules of the ordinances. So a commission was duly appointed to carry out said reform. But the composition of this council is evidence of Lancaster's own political competence. It was almost exclusively composed of royal supporters. With a council like that, Lancaster was never going to find it easy to get major changes. And nor was the Royal Leopard really changing any of his spots. Deep down, our Edward would always be needy and incapable of achieving a balance between friendship and politics. The big business of the day was the inheritance of the Earl of Gloucester, the massive de Clare lands. Now Gilbert had three daughters and a wife. When he died, his wife claimed that she was pregnant. Two years later, no baby had emerged, and even the most biologically unaware of them had begun to smell a rat. And so the inheritance was to be doled out to the deserving. It was to be doled out in the form of marriage to the three daughters. You'll understand that the three daughters are unlikely to have been consulted in the matter. Marriage was politics, not an affair of the heart. One of the daughters was already married to Hugh Dispenser. The other two were widows, one the widow of Piers Gaveston. So somehow the declared women had to be handed out, and the declared lands then apportioned. This was big business, with unmarried lords jockeying for position like a medieval game of take-me-out. And finally, in 1317, the three lucky lads were agreed on in Parliament. Hugh Dispenser got his lands, of course, and then Hugh Audley and Roger de Morey won the loves of their heart, i.e. the massive inheritance. 
The point about the spots and the leopard is that while this decision did have to be made, someone had to get the land after all, it then wouldn't stop there. These three men, Hugh Dispenser, Hugh Audley and Roger de Morey, were the new royal favourites, and once again Edward would fail to moderate his largesse. And by this time, Lancaster had already effectively withdrawn from the council he was supposed to be head of, rather grumpily claiming that the king was reneging on his deal to work with the ordinances. Actually, there's no great evidence of this at all. What's more likely is that Lancaster found it impossible to get his way with his unfavourable council. It's not a happy time for the relationship. In August 1316, Isabella and Edward had a second son, John of Eltham, and Lancaster was invited to the christening, but didn't bother to turn up. So yet again we're back in a period of instability, and while there was trouble at the English mill, there was major trouble at the Irish one. Now if you think about it, within the British Isles at least, until the appearance of Robert Bruce, our history has been one of steady English expansion since the days of Billy the Conk. The British Isles had slowly been heading in one direction, towards a kind of English empire, or hegemony if you like. The Scots, too, had been an expensive, acquisitive kingdom, but at various times their kings had been forced into paying homage to English kings. Now, the early 14th century saw the first big challenge to that. In Scotland, certainly the independence of Scotland was confirmed, but in 1315 they also began to challenge English dominance in other areas of the British Isles, namely in Ireland. Bruce wasn't content with throwing the English out of Scotland. He dreamed of a broader Scottish empire. Like the enormous crocodile, the idea was by way of secret plans and clever tricks. So when, in May 1315, Robert Bruce's brother Edward Bruce landed in the northwest of Ireland, the English lords were taken completely by surprise. Edward came armed with a letter from Big Brother for the Irish lords, urging them to make common cause to establish a Celtic empire. He said... Our people and your people, free since ancient times, share the same national ancestry and are urged to come together more eagerly and more joyfully in friendship by a common language and by common custom. The appeal had some effect and a bunch of Irish lords teamed up and joined the Scots. The English Lord Lieutenant was far away, so some Irish lords loyal to the English, suspecting they'd just be swapping one foreign invader for another, decided to resist and raised an army, but were crushed. Bruce moved south and added a bit of well-seasoned terror to leaven the bread of invasion, slaughtering the inhabitants of Dundalk. There is, by the way, a handy map on the website www.thehistoryofengland.com. It wasn't until September that the Earl of Ulster met Bruce in battle, and the result was a disaster. The Earl of Ulster fled south and west to join the Irish Lord Phelim O'Connor and Bruce set a besieging force around the massive Carrick-Fergus castle and then moved south. His next obstacle was Roger Mortar of Wigmore. Roger, as it happens, held extensive lands in Ireland centred on his castle at Trim. As Edward moved south towards the centre of English power at Dublin, Mortimer placed his army at the edge of his lands at the town called Kells. Beside him were Hugh and Walter de Lacey. The de Laceys were another major Anglo-Irish family. But the result, unfortunately, was another military catastrophe. The de Laceys deserted Mortimer, leading to very bad blood between them, which would have consequences. 
By Christmas 1315, the way to Dublin lay open for the Scots, and Mortimer made haste to England to give Edward the bad news. And then in 1315, Wales joined the discontented, and the reason was the same as ever. Some ham-fisted, big-booted English official, who played no attention to Welsh custom or feeling. This time, one of the Welsh lords objected, a man called Llewellyn Bren, and he asked the king to step in and help. Edward's carefully considered response was to charge him with treason. Well, with a response like this, you might just as well raise rebellion. After all, it's difficult to think of a worse way of dying. So in January 1316, the Sheriff of Glamorgan was carrying out his normal court. At some point, he looked up and noticed that he was surrounded by a bunch of grim-looking Welshmen. The Sheriff and his men tried to make a break for it, but all to no avail. The garrison of Caffili had seen what was happening and pulled up the drawbridge and refused to let the Sheriff in, in case any of the Welsh managed to sneak in with him. Brutal. So they watched as the Sheriff was totaled by Llewellyn Bren and his Welshmen. However, the revolt went the way of most Welsh revolts. Mortimer was back over in Wales, and he and other barons closed in on Llewellyn. Llewellyn decided against the fight to the death, and rode down the mountain to give himself up. As far as Mortimer was concerned, this was fine. He liked the guy, knew he'd been mistreated, and was pretty confident he could get him off the hook. And after pleading his case with the king, this is indeed what Mortimer achieved. And more than that, Edward now appointed Mortimer to be the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Mortimer had been part of Edward's youth and some of the most significant moments of his life, like his knighting and coronation. He was a powerful marcher lord and Irish landowner. It was an obvious choice. And for Mortimer, it was a taste of the power he craved. Although this particular appointment might be considered something of a hospital pass, given the fact that the Scots were basically wandering at will all over Ireland, burning, plundering and destroying, in an attempt to show the Irish lords that alliance with the English had no future. In fact, Mortimer did a pretty good job in Ireland, though in a relatively brief tour of duty. His two-year stint is a pretty good example of the kind of man he was. So on the one hand, there's no doubt he was effective and he turned things round for the king. On the other hand, there's equally little doubt that he took the opportunity to settle a few scores of his own. The Scots seemed to have Ireland at their mercy. They had captured the Earl of Ulster. They'd burned and slaughtered their way to the suburbs of Dublin. But although they did have their Irish adherents, there had been no wholesale defection to them, no Scottish-Irish empire. And when Mortimer landed with his new army from England, they basically caved in. They couldn't get inside the walls of Dublin Castle and the lands around them were burned to a cinder so they couldn't sustain themselves. And therefore in the face of determined opposition they slunk back to their main power base in the north of Ireland. Which gave Mortimer the chance to indulge himself. He hadn't forgotten the Delaces and their desertion of him at Kells and he hadn't forgiven the Delaces for their desertion of him at Kells and by June 1317 he had his revenge on the de Laces for their desertion of him at Kells, crushing them both in two battles. In the next year, Mortimer re-established English authority in most of Ireland outside Ulster, where the Scots still lurked. However, Mortimer didn't get to finish the job. Edward Bruce was still in Ireland when he was recalled, but he made sure that before he left, John de Lacey, the son of either Hugh or Walter, was sentenced to death to die of starvation 
in his castle at Trim. Edward Bruce had only one more year for his Irish adventure. In 1318, near Dundalk, the Scots were definitively defeated by John de Birmingham. Edward Bruce killed during the fight, his salted head sent back to the king, and it was all over. De Birmingham was created Earl of Louth in reward, married an Irish lass and prepared for a long and fruitful life. In fact, by 1329, he, eight of his family and 20 retainers had been murdered at his home in Bregenstown. But that's another story. Back in the world of central politics, all was confusion and poison. The Scots continuously threatened the North and in 1318 finally retook Berwick. Edward failed to mount any effective concerted campaign in these years, but then Lancaster's failure was just as bad, even to the point where there's a very strong suspicion that Lancaster had made some kind of deal with Bruce. It's the kind of suspicion that falls under the there's no smoke without fire category. But people essentially noticed that when the Scots came over the border with fire and sword, Lancaster's estates seemed to get missed, which was frankly a bit spooky, since it was difficult to spit in the north without hitting one of Lancaster's estates. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market the air was thick with intrigue and hatred in relative terms the king's new favorites damori audley and the younger and elder dispensers were just coasting they'd only really put the afterburners on when lancaster was gone but it's quite clear their influence was growing at court and edward was doing his normal gig of just letting it all happen, indulging his friends and assuming that nothing could be his fault. A good example is the fate of Llewellyn Bren. Llewellyn had valuable land in Wales, Dispenser the Younger was also a marcher lord and he wanted more land, as it happens. So although Bren had apparently been sentenced only to imprisonment on Mortimer's word, Dispenser had him seized, dragged through the town on hurdles, hung, drawn and quartered and his quarters liberally distributed around the country. 
In so doing, Dispenser earned the hatred of Mortimer, who had given Bren his word. Quite what Edward was playing at is anyone's guess. After all, he'd agreed to commute the sentence, but hey, Dispenser was his pal. What was the death of some Welsh prince when compared to that? So at court, factions coalesced and transformed and changed like a sort of kaleidoscope or 70s oil lamp. We even had written treaties between magnates saying that they'll work together. In a sense, it's like Ethelred all those years ago and the weakness of leadership that leads to poison and distrust. Now, I could go through all the various peregrinations of intermagnate suspicions and such like, but we'd be here all day. So I shan't do that, but I thought I'd mention an odd example. So let us take Thomas of Lancaster and John Warren, the Earl of Surrey. Warren, as we know, was unhappily married to Jeanne de Bar, as unhappily married to Jeanne as Lancaster was unhappily married to his own wife, Alice de Lacey. Warren and Lancaster also had a quarrel about some land in the marches, which of course is pretty par for the course. But then, more than a little outrageously, Warren had Lancaster's wife abducted and taken to his castle in Reigate. Lancaster was furious. Not because his wife was no longer around, because actually he'd taken up with his mistress anyway, but because it was the most appalling affront to his dignity. In fact, there's a strong suspicion that it suited them all just fine, but really, if you're a magnet, you can't let people wander around abducting your wife and so on. Where would it all end? They'd end up removing something Lancaster thought had real value, like his purse, something like that. Anyway, you get the point, hopefully. So he started a private war with Warren, attacking his Yorkshire estates, all in the style of the Lancaster bullying approach to personal relationships, although in this case he clearly had something of an excuse. Meanwhile, Lancaster thought that it was Edward who had popped Warren up to all of this. Some historians think it might be Damori or the dispensers trying to keep the king and Lancaster apart by sowing discord and irritation. See what I mean? It's all rotten and hideous. Somehow, Edward and Lancaster just managed to avoid out-and-out civil war. And in 1318, we have the Treaty of Leek. I'm rather pleased about the Treaty of Leek, since apparently Edward and Lancaster exchanged the kiss of peace somewhere between Loughborough and Leicester, which is exactly where I was brought up. So maybe they kissed in our living room, or something like that. Very excited. Anyway, the Treaty of Leek established a council of eight bishops and four barons, with a banneret there to represent Lancaster's interests. This council would take a year to sort out all the disputes between Parliament and the King. Everyone who had opposed the King in any way were to be pardoned, and Edward promised to accept the ordinances. But it's really rather glaring that the royal favourites and their possible removal were not mentioned. Significantly, the Earl of Surrey was specifically excluded from the treaty, and at this point, had I been the Earl of Surrey, a degree of bagpacking would have been going on. So apparently everyone now loved each other and would live in peace and harmony. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very likely and 1 being very unlikely, how likely do we think this to be? Answers on a postcard. But at the York Parliament following the treaty, things did seem to move forward. On the one hand, the new royal favourites, Audley and Damori, had royal land grants confirmed but on the other hand, they agreed to leave court. Plus, Lancaster got his hands on Warren and locked him up in Pontefract Castle until he finally gave in and gave Lancaster a load of lands. Game, set and match, Lancaster. 
Implicit in the treaty was Lancaster's direct involvement in subduing the Scots, particularly in getting Berwick back from them. So, in 1319, armed with parliamentary subsidies and an army of 23,000 men, Edward attacked Berwick in September. It's interesting, by the way, that all these campaigns start so late in the year. After all, we're talking Northumbria here. The weather can be genuinely filthy up there in winter. I'm guessing it's the availability of food and harvest, but any theory is welcome. Anyway, after a week or so, came the news of an English defeat behind them at Merton. Basically, the Scots had launched an attack on northern England behind Edward's back, heading towards York, where the Queen was living. The local commanders did their best, putting together a force of levies and heading towards the River Swale, but at Merton, essentially, a bunch of farm workers met the cream of Scottish fighters, and the result was exactly what you'd expect. The Scots started the confusion by burning bales of straw so that the smoke covered their attack. Then, rather rudely, I think, they shouted at the English. This was pretty much enough for the farmers, and they legged it towards the bridge and escape over the river. Sadly, the Scots had thought of that as well, and sent their mounted sergeants round the back to cut off that avenue of retreat. And so 4,000 English farm workers lost their lives. Spookily, of course, the noble English commanders seemed to have escaped and made it back to York. Twas ever thus. The impact on Edward was that he had to raise the siege of Berwick and scuttle back to York. No one gave PowerPoint presentations about the importance of a no-blame culture and the value of learning from mistakes. Really not. The knives were out, the mud was slinging, and the new piece was fractured. Really, the Treaty of Leek was already a dead letter. But the thing that really does for the harmony of the nation is a nice young man called Hugh de Spencer. It's really confusing, I admit, because there's been a Hugh Dispenser around as a favourite at court for some time, but this is his son. The elder Dispenser was not popular, it had to be said, but he had a degree of common. The younger Dispenser was greedy, rapacious and completely unscrupulous. And this is the problem with Edward. He was incorrigible. As soon as you get rid of a Gaveston, you get a Damori or an Audley. As soon as you get them sent away from court, you get a Dispenser. You don't solve the problem, you just get a new one. The younger dispenser had a plan. It was a simple plan. There is a very famous quote from a letter from the younger dispenser to his sheriff in Glamorgan to look after his affairs so that, quote, we may be rich and attain our aims. And meanwhile the language about the dispensers is remarkably similar to that of Gaveston. Here's a quote. No baron could approach the king without their consent, and then a bribe was usually necessary. They answered petitions as they wished, they removed household officials without consulting the baronage, and any who displeased them, or whose lands they coveted, they threw into prison. The king would take advice from no one but them. But while Gaveston was just an arrogant little tick, over-fond of his own talents and of a party, the younger dispenser wanted more. He wanted power. The focus of the younger dispenser's lands were in Wales, and it is in the marches that we were to find our flashpoint. Basically, dispenser used his position to take lands from the lords there. So, for example, there's a rather nice peninsula in southern Wales called the Gower Peninsula. And Gower is where the bloodline of the once mighty family of the Briews ran out. With the death of the last Briews, one John Mowbray acquired the land, but the younger dispenser moved in and simply took the land under a legal pretense. 
In extending his power, younger Dispenser was challenging the rights of one of the most powerful men in England, the Marchers. A backlash was on its way. As the situation worsened, and it became clear that the King would not control the Dispensers, Lancaster made some attempts to form a party of opposition. In early 1321, for example, he held a meeting of many lords in the north. He made a rather spurious claim that, since he was steward of England, he had a right to control the royal household and take it over if the king was a dipstick, although clearly this was a pretty spurious claim and he unsurprisingly failed to make that stick. But in other ways, he had some impact. In the spring of 1321, the marchers fought back against the younger dispenser, led by Mortimer and the Earl of Hereford, attacking and wasting dispensers' lands in Wales. Mortimer was now well on the way to becoming the king's enemy rather than his friend and lieutenant. But this was not because of a direct quarrel between Mortimer and the king. The route to rebellion lay in the challenge of one baron against another. And here's the nub of Edward's failure. A competent king would have stood above such an argument. After all, this kind of dispute was constantly going on. But by becoming seen as being on one side, there was now no independent arbiter, so the only choice was submission or rebellion. By the Parliament of August 1321, Edward was cornered. When Lancaster and the magnates demanded the exile of the dispensers, even the most moderate earls who had always supported the king, Pembroke, Arundel and Richmond, thought it was a good thing, and the dispensers were forced to flee. But for Edward, this was simply a chance to buy himself a breathing space to plan. At dinner one night during Parliament, he whispered to the Bishop of Rochester that, quote, He would, within a year, make such an amend that the whole world would hear of it and tremble. In a purely practical sense, the final struggle with Lancaster showed that, when up against it, Edward could be decisive and effective. He and the dispensers had a plan. They knew full well that in Lancaster they had a poor leader. And in the magnates, they had a group of irritable and fractious men who could always find some excuse for falling out. And Edward had one big, big advantage. In the end, he was the king. And rebellion against the king was not the same as fighting some other magnate. It was a big, big step to take. So, Edward and the dispensers were going for a divide-and-conquer approach. So, who to divide off and conquer first? Who to pick on to provide the spark of conflict? He picked on one Bartholomew of Battlesmere, probably because he had such a complicated name. In September 1321, he ordered Bart to give up Tombridge Castle in Kent. Bart reacted by making sure his weapons were sorted, that his garrisons were well stocked, and then went off to Oxford, where the barons were holding a tournament, the traditional cover for a rebel meeting. And so Edward and Isabella left Westminster, on the pretense of going on pilgrimage to Canterbury. On the way, he had the Queen Isabella go via Leeds Castle in Kent and ask for hospitality from Bart's wife, Margaret de Clare. The plan was that she would be refused entry and Edward would have his excuse to attack. The right to hospitality was a core royal right. And Bart was a well-chosen target because it just so happened that although he was firmly in the baronial, anti-dispenser camp, Bart and Lancaster were not friendly, not friendly at all. In fact, they hated each other. So maybe here was a chance to start picking off the rebels one by one. 
And so, in the best tradition of cliffhangers, that's where we're going to leave it this week, with Isabella and Margaret de Clare staring at each other over the battlements of Leeds Castle. It's a great place to go and visit, by the way, a good day out. But next time, we'll find out what happens. Another round of Kiss and Makeup, or the final countdown. My thanks to everyone who comments on the website, or iTunes, or joins the Facebook group, or indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone, and have a great week.